don't you don't get a break. Yeah, okay. All right. So oh, Susanna's going to get mic'd up, but then um, she will talk to all of us about some of the new agents, kind of things we've been alluding to um, most of the day in one fashion or another. So now you'll finally get to hear some of the information about some of the new agents that are causing, uh, I think, quite a bit of excitement in the field of HCV treatment, but also bringing up some kind of new clinical conundrums, I think, about in terms of what to do right now with some of the patients with these new options right, right around the corner. So, Susanna? I bet you, you guys are thrilled that you started off with me at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and now we're going to bring it home at, uh, what is this, 2.45 before I jump on a red eye and fly back to Durham, North Carolina for a biscuit. Um, so hopefully I will not put you all to sleep. Um, the point of this really is to try to show you what the latest and greatest is. There's actually a lot of room for excitement. Um, and it's hard to try to, you know, summarize what's going on in 30 minutes. But I tried to pick... Um, some of the studies that have been presented most recently at either CROI, which was very exciting to see Hep C, even Hep C mono-infection being presented at our HIV conference, as well as the European Liver Meeting, which just happened um, in, uh, in Amsterdam in, in April. So just some, some summaries of things. You guys have seen my disclosure slides this morning. Um, so we do have a question to start this off. And what this says is, which genotype have we recently learned is more difficult to treat than expected with direct-acting antivirals. There we go. So we'll come back to this question again at the end, where I know you all get at least 100% if you don't already, because you're clearly a very knowledgeable group. OK. So, uh, so we'll, we'll get back to this, and, and I think we'll cover this well. So this was the error slide that I told us, the IT group that we had. So sorry, um, you're not seeing double. It's actually some sort of problem here. But we're going to focus on the, the background and quickly virology. So this is a review for those of you who were here this morning. Very quickly, just a few slides about the mechanisms of action. And then we're going to focus again on um, some of the trials that have been uh, recently presented. So um, again, HCV uh, virus life cycle occurring in the cytoplasm and the mechanism of action for these HCV-related agents occurring at the translational cleavage and replication stages of the life cycle. Um, specifically, if we look at the HCV virus and the genome and the proteins that are produced from that, again, we've got, as you all heard this morning, the structural proteins, um, and then the NS, or non-structural proteins. These are the sites of action for these new drugs. We have the NS3-4A protease inhibitors, again, bosopavir tilaprovir being the first phase of those. The NS5A inhibitors, which are a very exciting drug class. Um, and then the NS5B polymerase inhibitors, also a very exciting uh, drug class that we're going to focus on over the next few slides a little bit more specifically. So the NS3, so you've heard a lot about bosopavir and tilaprovir already. These are serine protease inhibitors. So as opposed to the HIV protease, which is an aspartyl protease, a lot of folks who take care of HIV get very concerned about the possibility of interaction of the hep C protease with the HIV or inhibitor with the HIV protease, but that does not occur given they are very, very different in terms of their structure. Um, these are very potent, so highly, highly potent agents. The issue is that they have a very low barrier to resistance. So it's quite different than the HIV protease inhibitor in that with direct monotherapy, you have almost immediate, within 14 days, resistance across the board um, in, in humans. And so clearly from the beginning, there was a recognition that these drugs need to be combined with a backbone. Um, now when bosopavir and tilaprovir were first being studied, there was no other backbone. 
um, other than PEG and RIBA. And that is why with the initial phase and rollout of these drugs, we had to have PEG-RIBA in combination because we didn't have other backbones. But now moving forward, as you will see, we have lots of other backbones. And so the interesting, the, the combinations of how you can do this get very, very interesting. Um, so the, the, the first wave is primarily active against genotype you know, 1, as you all know, and that's where they are FDA approved. Moving forward, we see that we actually have multi-genotypic NS34A protease inhibitors, although genotype 3 appears to be a bit of a hole for a lot of these drugs in terms of coverage, which has been a very interesting thing for those of us following this. So the NS5B polymerase inhibitors, another very interesting drug class, in particular the nucleoside polymerase inhibitors. These, um, and so when I speak about this, I'm really going to speak primarily about the nuke um, or nuke. So this, they describe the um, this uh, enzyme, the NS5B polymerase, um, uh, as a hand in terms of the structure, with the catalytic site being at the palm and or in the center, and the non-nuke sites being primarily in finger regions. So because this is a highly conserved site, the nukes have very, very high barriers to resistance. Um, and that makes these drugs really interesting with regards to being a backbone, if you will, um, and are really um, an, an interesting group of drugs to be used in combinations with other highly potent drugs like an NS5A or like an NS34A protease inhibitor. Um, and so clearly, hopefully, will play a role in interferon-free regimens as well as interferon-sparing. And we'll talk about a pangenotypic um, nuke uh, in a few minutes. And then again, the NS5A. Potency is moderate, so can be highly anywhere from moderate to highly potent, and the barrier to resistance is somewhere in the middle as well. So you get the, the PIs that are highly potent but low barrier to resistance, you get the nukes that have a very high barrier to resistance and good potency to moderate potency, and then you get these guys that fall right in the middle. But also, um, some of the new ones that are coming out and being studied kind of in early human studies are actually showing pretty high barriers to resistance, and so hopefully can also serve possibly as a backbone as well. All right, so now let's switch and talk about uh, the meat of, uh, of some of these drugs. So this is, I think, everyone's seen an iteration of a slide like this, which is showing you where we have come. So if you look at PEG and RIBA, we talked about the ideal study showing about a 40% cure in genotype 1 patients. Now we have data showing that with DAAs in combination, all oral, no interferon, and maybe no ribavirin, we can achieve cures of over 90%. The beauty of this is if you compare HIV-infected patients who previously appeared to have a poor response to therapy, at least with our phase twos and the early kinetics that were presented at Croy in terms of the phase threes, it, it appears that the playing field has been leveled. HIV may no longer be a, a, a risk, a baseline risk factor for poor response to therapy. And we hopefully will have data of all oral treatments um, by the uh, end of the year. So this just shows you the drugs in development in hep C. Um, and uh, the bottom line is I need like a Twitter feed to be able to follow all of these drugs and how quickly they fall in and out and move up and that sort of thing. But the bottom line is we have two new drugs that have been submitted to the FDA, bisabivir-telabivir already being approved, lots of drugs in phase three as well as phase two. So this is a very exciting time. I mean, really a bit different in terms of how it happened in HIV, which was almost like one thing after the other. This is really the shotgun approach. Um, it's a mad race uh, to the finish line, I can tell you that. So it's been very exciting as a, as a treater um, and a provider. So our, our next question is, the first interferon-free therapy for genotype 1 infection will be FDA approved when? In the next 12 months, in the next one to three years, in the next three to five years? Why would anyone want to get rid of interferons? 
Mostly because we like our patients. But we want to get rid of the interference. So let's see what you guys have to say. Yeah, so in the next 12 months or in the next one to three years. So the answer here is interferon-free genotype 1 not coming in 12 months. Hopefully will be coming in the next one to three years. Um, and you'll find out kind of why this is. But the cefospavir um, NDA does not include interferon-free for genotype 1. Much to our dismay. So cefospavir is the first drug that we're going to talk about. We're going to focus primarily on three of these drugs just because we have to kind of do this before midnight. Um, so cefospavir is the first, um, uh, I shouldn't say the first, but it will be the first FDA-approved nucleoside polymerase inhibitor. Um, this is a pan-genotypic, active against all genotypes, although as we have learned, it is not acti as active against genotype 3. Um, so it's been studied in over 2,000 patients with no virologic breakthrough resistance in one patient who's a genotype 2 who relapsed. So this is a crazy in terms of thinking about barriers to resistance. And for those of us who do HIV, this drug given as monotherapy or with ribavirin and no viral breakthroughs just seems quite amazing. Um, no significant drug-drug interactions with our HIV antiretrovirals, which makes this a very nice drug in terms of use with an HIV co-infected patient population. And we hope that it'll be FDA approved by September to December of this year. So this is the neutrino study. You guys may have seen this. This was just published in the New England Journal on the same day that it was being presented at Ezel in Amsterdam. If I'd have known, I wouldn't have flown all the way to, to Europe to see it. Um, and the bottom line is this is going to be the new standard of care for genotype 1 infection when this drug is approved. So this is looking at treatment-naive genotypes 1 through 6, although primarily it was genotype 1. Um, and it's looking at 12 weeks of treatment. And this is the cure rate in genotype 1, 90%. In genotype 4, 96%. Um, there was one genotype 5 who was cured. There were six genotype 6 who were cured. Um, but this is 12 weeks of triple therapy. So this is what's called interferon sparing. We're sparing you a lot of interferon, but, you're, but it's not going away completely. <clears throat> so if we look at specifically at some of the more difficult-to-treat groups that we know with tilapavir and bosepavir maybe had poor responses to therapy, you can see that patients with cirrhosis maybe had a little drop, but still an 80% cure rate in 12 weeks with a treatment-naive cirrhotic genotype 1. I mean, you know, we're, we're starting to, to, to uh, get to points that we can't complain. The non-CCs, um, 87, and patients of African descent, 87. So the, these are very good numbers for us moving forward with the new standard of care um, uh, coming by the end of the year. So now we look at what is the, tr the, the new standard of care for genotype 2, is what I will argue. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. So this is the true interferon-free. This is what we all thought was coming for our genotype 1 patients, but it's not. Um, so this is cefospavir and weight-based ribavirin, treatment-naive genotype 2-3s. So if you look at these numbers at SVR12, you can see that the overall cure rate was almost 70%, exactly the same as PEG and RIBA. This is 12 weeks, interferon-free. So it's hard to even complain about that, right? But certainly we'd like to see numbers better than 67%. But what you look is if you break this down by genotype 2s, 97% cure. 12 weeks, no interferon. Um, versus the threes, it was 56%. So this is the first sign that interferon-free is coming for genotype 2 naives. It is not coming for genotype threes. And it's not probably not coming for cirrhotics, as I'm going to show you in the next few slides. Um, so this is looking, breaking those numbers down now by cirrhotics. You can see that maybe there was a little benefit. And of course, in terms of length of treatment, there's benefit here. But that we're, we're, these numbers drop even more. Um, now, this was in part driven by the fact that this trial was 75% genotype 3s. And, uh, and most of the cirrhotics, which was 20%, were genotype 3s. So it's hard to know 
where those you know, type 2 cirrhotics fall, but we'll show you some data with regards to patients who are treatment experienced. But I think the take-home point, hopefully, will be that I think a genotype 2 cirrhotic may need at least more treatment, a longer course of therapy, not necessarily interferon, but a longer course of therapy. So that's what the fusion study looked at. So this is cefosfavirin weight based bovivir, so still interferon-free, but now we're looking at treatment experience patients. And what they also did was they looked at 12 versus 16 weeks, just four additional weeks of therapy. But it's quite impressive to see the difference that it makes. So if you look, so look here, um, over 20% absolute increase in cure rates just by going four more weeks in all comers. And then the next slide is going to look like I drank too much coffee, um, <laughs> which I probably do. But the bottom line is that I'm going to walk you through this because there are some very important points here. So if you look first just at genotype 2s, there does not appear to be a big benefit if you're a geno 2 in going 12 to 16 weeks, right? The big benefit appears to be in this dark blue bar um, here, and certainly in these bars here, right? You can tell 19 to 61, 37 to 63, or 30 to 62. And those people are patients who are genotype 3, um, regardless of whether or not they have cirrhosis. And then ultimately, if you look at the patients who are genotype 2, F4, which are cirrhotics, what you see here is a 60 to 78%. Does that make sense? Whereas if you look at the genotype choose without cirrhosis, there was no difference. So I think that what this argues, at least the argument that I would make, is a genotype 2 who doesn't have cirrhosis can get 12 weeks, even if they're experienced. Now these are primarily relapsers, but with cefosibir and ribavirin for 12 weeks and they're good to go. But if you have cirrhosis and or if you're a 3, you need at least 16 weeks and I would argue that with these numbers, you either need more like 24, or you need interferon. So luckily, you know, this study is being done in treatment experienced HIV co-infected patients. And these data will be available within the next six months. And so we, with 24 weeks. So we should be able to answer this question with co-infection data, which is very, very nice. Yes, ma'am. Herb therapy? <laughs> you mean me? <laughs> Got it. Thank you. <laughs> So now let's, so the, the, the next teaching point is, so what does this mean for our genotype 1 patients? Because if interferon-free is not coming in the next number of months, then when is it coming? And so this is looking at that cefosbuvir ribavirin in, in genotype 1's naives, 84% cure in 12 weeks, which is not bad. I mean, you could argue that for a genotype 1 naive, maybe you'd try it if the drug, you know, didn't, was, isn't going to cost over $50,000. Um, but in Knowles, very clearly, they did very poorly with this therapy, right? So then what um, they do is they combine cefosbuvir, um, which is, again, a nuke, with their NS5A lidiposphere. This data just presented at Croy, 25 of 25 cured in 12 weeks, 20, or 9 of 9 of Knowles cured in 12 weeks. So small numbers, but ultimately what I think this means is for a genotype 1, we're looking at multiple combinations of DAAs, not just the one, um, but that ultimately this looks very promising. Now, these are not cirrhotics. These are small numbers. But this is the future for Geno 1 interferon-free moving forward, but you can see where this is a couple of years away, right? So now we're turning to Simipravir. This is the second wave of the HCV protease inhibitors. This is a once-daily dose. Um, highly potent NS34A protease inhibitor. So very promising in that sense. Multi-genotypic 
except for genotype 3, um, and, uh, and does have some pretty significant DDI. So this, their phase 3 and co-infection is underway, response-guided, looked excellent, presented at Croy, but HIV protease inhibitors and efavirenz are not included in that study. And so the issue, I think, will become whether or not you can get people on a regimen to get them on simipravir. But ropivirine was allowed, roptegravir was allowed, Trivada, obviously, the combination was allowed, and uh, Maraviroc was allowed. So this will be the next one, also hopefully approved by the end of the year. So I don't want to belabor this point, but this is just showing you data of simipravir with pegriba. This is going to be more along the lines of the telepavir bosepravir. We're looking at response-guided therapy. 24 versus 48 weeks, only 12 weeks of the DAA, but 24 versus 48 of PEG-RIBA. We're looking at numbers with response-guided therapy of, of well over that 65 to 70% you saw with bisepivir-telapivir, with, with um, so closer to 90%, and 85% of people meet response-guided therapy criteria. So most patients are getting 24 weeks of therapy. Um, but poor, poor responses in cirrhotics, although certainly not Four responses in cirrhotics, I would argue. So this is where it gets really interesting. So two drugs are going to be FDA approved for the treatment of HCV, and this phase two study was done looking at them in combination without interferon. So interferon free. Um, but this will not move into phase three, and thus any use of this combination would be off-label, and I'm sure extremely expensive. That being said, look at how it responds. In genotype one, null responders treated for 12 versus 24 weeks. So what you have here in blue is 24 weeks plus or minus ribavirin and 12 weeks plus or minus ribavirin. Take home point is these two drugs without ribavirin, 12 weeks, close to 100% cure in null responders. Yes, sir. Well, the bottom line is that um, when this went into phase two, this drug was had a different name. It was. Uh, it was a 7977. It was owned by a different company when it was bought by uh, the company that now owns it. Um, the bottom line was they had their own um, interior PIs and NS5As, and so they're doing internal studies. Moving forward, um, they may decide to do things otherwise, but for now, they're not moving forward with phase threes outside of their own program. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how this goes uh, forward, but this is highly promising um, for the idea of combinations of DAAs. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, so the clinical trials are following for 24 weeks. So we'll, we'll have SVR24 data for all of these if we don't already. Um, but as I said, even with the, D, with the DAAs, we know that SVR12 corresponds to SVR24 at over 98%. So, so SVR12 is viewed as a cure and, it, and, and appears to be very robust in that. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, so now the last drug is decladosphere. So this is an NS5A, um, so similar in the same class as ledeposphere, the just drug I just showed you in combination with cefospivir. Um, this is pangenotypic. So as far as I know, this is the only other drug that's really being investigated in genotype 2-3 disease. So it is the only other pangenotypic drug that we have. Um, it's been studied in a ton of patients. It does have DDIs with, with antiretrovirals, but I believe that these are ones that will be we're going to have good data on and hopefully we'll be able to be worked out in terms of increasing or decreasing doses of the, um, of the decladosphere drug. And maybe an option for nucleotide sparing. 
meaning if you can't get your hands on a nuke, maybe you can use NS this NS5A because it is highly potent. And I'll show you some examples of that. So this shows you the data for genotype 2-3. And again, what I just want to show you is that it, when used with PEG-RIBA for 12 or 16 weeks, it appears to have very high cure rates for patients with genotype 2-3 disease. So this is good because we need a little competition in the market. Um, this is not interferon-free, but it is interferon-sparing and is a very good option for a genotype 2-3 patient. And this is SBR24, so this is very far end. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, that was genotype 2, these are genotype 3. So, so as we have known, genotype 3s do a little worse, so genotypes 2s get in the 85% range, genotype 3s get more in the kind of 65 to 70% range. So something that we really didn't expect, but that we're learning now as we're going through these trials. And then this shows you the combination of three drugs. So if you don't have a nuke to kind of combine with, then maybe you can take a couple of drugs and put them all together. So this is the Cladosphere NS5A. This is their protease inhibitor and their non-nuke, generally a class of drugs that hasn't gotten a ton of attention for quite some time. Um, and this is very early data, very few patients, treatment-naive, non-serotics, but 12 weeks, SVR12, 94%. So, and this is moving forward now into, into phase three study. So this, I think, will ultimately be a very exciting option for patients, but this is, you know, we're looking at three years away at this point. And then this gets into something that's also very interesting. So now you, we had the sofosavir simipavir, right? So the, the nuke and the PI. Well, now here's the nuke and the NS5A. So this is similar to Gilead's internal program with ledipasphere, but this is with BMS's drug. Um, which should be the next submitted to the IRB, to, to the IRB submitted to the FDA um, for, for, um, for approval. And you can see here, summary of this is genotype 1s without ribavirin, 12 weeks, 100% cure. And that's pretty nice to look at, right? <laughs> and then take it one step further. Same treatment, these are patients who failed telaprevir and bosepravir. Genotype 1, triple therapy failures. Triple therapy meaning sofosavir, decladosphere, and ribavirin, or dual therapy, which is just sofosavir, decladosphere. This one patient didn't show up for his SVR12, but he did show up for his SVR24. He was secured. So again, 100%. Small numbers, 20 patients in each arm, but this looks really great, right? Really great. And these are people who failed what the best treatment we have today. What's most interesting about this, I think, is these patients were an average two and a half years out from their failure, and almost 50% still had protease inhibitor-based resistance at a population level. And so if this had been sofosbuvir and simiprevir, we, I doubt that these numbers would have been as good, but we do not know for sure. And so this is actually, I think, my second to last slide. So this is now looking at another triple plus quadruple combination therapy. This is Abbott's program. So what I've showed you really is four different programs, which means four different options, which I think overall is really good for our patients. Um, and this is looking at their, so it's Abbott, right? So they need, their PI requires ritonavir. <laughs> um, this is their NS5A, and this is their non-nuke plus or minus ribavirin. Um, and you can see here that the, no, so this is in treatment naives are in blue, nulls are in red. This is 12 weeks. Everyone gets 12 weeks. Um, and there was no difference in the naives at least, no significant difference if ribavirin was 
there, although the phase three will include ribavirin because of this slight difference. I don't know that this was statistically significant. Um, but you can see the numbers. Over 90% cure. This is SVR 24. Naive or null, 12 weeks. And it doesn't matter whether you're 1A or 1B, whether you're African descent or not, whether you're a man or a woman. Serotics were not included in this. But this is quite phenomenal. And this is going phase three. Um, and hopefully will be rolled out into co-infection as well within the year. Sorry, it should be free. That, thank you for catching that. So I actually made this slide when the aviator was first presented at ASLD. And back then, interferon sparing meant interferon free. Then we went to ESA when there was a whole new lingo. And now interferon sparing is actually really interferon sparing. And interferon free is really interferon free. So thank you for catching that. So that's it. So in a nutshell, interferon free is coming for Geno2s. Naive and experienced, I don't think it's going to work so well for genotype 2 serotics. Um, and I think they're either going to need 24 weeks or they're going to have to have interferon if you want to shorten the course of therapy. For GENO3s, you're going to need interferon, I think, or a prolonged course of therapy. But this is where we don't have a lot of data to, to guide us. And, um, and interferon sparing for GENO1s will be the new standard of care. And you're looking at somewhere around 12 to 24 weeks, depending on which drug you choose. Um, and then otherwise for interferon free as a whole, I think we're looking at somewhere between you know two to three years before interferon free is available by the FDA um, for approval for genotype 1 patients. And I think the last slide is going to be our question again. So you guys have seen this before. Let's see if we can get this started. Which genotype have we recently learned is more difficult to treat among patients um, with, on DAAs? Now that was great. Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much. Great. Take a deep breath, Susanna. Yeah, sorry about that. No. Any questions for Susanna on kind of what's coming up, the interferon free therapies, new DAAs? All of this is every one of those drugs I showed you is currently in phase three with co-infection. So the big difference that I think is so critical is that these new drugs, as being rolled out, while for semipravir and sofosbuvir, HIV wasn't part of their NDA, they do plan when those phase threes are done. And again, for sofosbuvir, that data will be coming over the next six to eight months um, to then include it in the package insert. So we're way, they are way ahead of the game. Um, and certainly, I think that's a good thing. Thank you. Yes. That's a great question. So, sofosbuvir lidipasvir is co-formulated in the Abbott. Um, their NS5A and their PI and the ritonavir are co-formulated. So, there is co-formulation going on. So, that many of these will be one pill once a day. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, 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 so for the Abbott one, their 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 PI and their NS5A is once a day. So, that's going to be co-formulated as once a day. Their non-nuke is BID. Ribavirin technically can be given once a day, but would be BID. So, that combination is a little tougher. But if you look at the Gilead fixed dose combination, it's once a day. Yep. C tripla. <laughs> Any other? Dr. Peters. Oh, I'm has sorry, a question. Doctor. So I have a question about ribavirin. Every time we've tried to get rid of it, we've failed. And yet there's small numbers and they're tantalizing. Do you think we'll get rid of it? And if so, for whom? Actually, I do. I mean, I, you know, and I, I think the small numbers thing is absolutely true. We've all been to ASLD and we walk out going, yes, we're curing everyone. And then, you know, six months later, I, I say, I feel like I'm one of my, you know, one of my 
my bipolar patients, I'm just all over the map, right? But I actually do believe when we get combinations, uh, very highly potent combinations with a very strong backbone, I think that it will be. So what I actually think, the, the final answer is, I think it depends on the group of drugs. So I think if, you're, if you as a company can pull together a group of drugs that has a strong enough backbone for resistance, which is what I think the rubavirin is preventing against, then you don't need the rubavirin. But if you have a group of drugs that needs a little bit of an extra push, then you may need the ribavirin. And we're seeing that, right? The Abbott group is moving forward with ribavirin, whereas I suspect the Gilead group will, will not. Will not. Um, and I think it's going to come down to the drug more so than the liver disease with the patient. But I, you know, I've certainly been wrong before, as my husband knows all too well. <laughs> okay. We have a couple written questions here. So this one says, given these high SVR rates, um, where is your threshold to treat? Um, and then the second part of this question, I'm not sure, it says kind of questions whether we should be treating everybody with HCV or not. So I, I'm not sure if that means what's your threshold to treat right now versus waiting, yeah. or what will your threshold be when we have these new regimens that presumably are very well tolerated and very short. Yeah, and I think that that's right. So we make these decisions based on, on the tolerance of the regimen. So right now, in my co-infected and mono-infected clinic, I don't treat anyone who's not a cirrhotic. And then with cirrhotics, we have a real discussion. And in my, in my, because if we're talking about cefosivir being available as early as September and as late as December, or at least approved, then we have to think about when is it going to be available. In the VA, it's going to take at least six months probably before we have access. But that's still within a year. And, in, and unless you have a patient with a platelet count of 70 who's got significant portal hypertension, but if I have a patient who doesn't have an enlarged spleen and has a normal platelet count, and I'm telling them that they should wait a year, even if they're a cirrhotic. So for me, even with HIV co-infection, which may be something, again, this is just my opinion and my practice, and there are other people in the room who wouldn't do this, but, um, but for me, it's cirrhosis, no cirrhosis. And even beyond cirrhosis, I'm teasing out the ones I think who can wait and who can't. Um, beyond that, am I waiting for interferon-free, right? So when I'm talking about those patients waiting, I'm talking about waiting for 12 weeks or 24 weeks of a, of a new once-daily dose, more tolerated, but still includes interferon and ribavirin. Interferon-free, I mean, I have patients who are state, you know, zero ones or twos. Oh yeah, I'm telling them, I'm at least recommending to them the consideration of, of waiting. Um, and then using non-invasive markers for monitoring. Um, so that, that's, that's certainly where, where I am. And then that gets to the whole thing of, so at what point do we get where we just treat everyone? Right. And, and I think, again, we had this discussion this morning. I think that's also a financial question and a, and a question on, on, on our healthcare system as to what burden can it carry. When it's one pill once a day for six to 12 weeks, and that's what is going to be coming down the pike. So we're not stuck at 12 now. If you can cure 100 people at 12, then you can cure a good number of people at six or eight or 12, right? So, um, so there, there's going to be all kinds of variation here. And I think ultimately, this is not going to be a one-stop shop. It's going to depend on the patient. Cirrhotic, not cirrhotic, genotype, previous treated, what is it going to, you know, and, and we're going to then make decisions on, on length of treatment and, and regimens. seeing for, or that you would tell your patients who were treated with triple therapy, failed, and are cirrhotic. And are cirrhotic, yeah. And are cirrhotic, yeah. yeah. So I think that's a fantastic question, because I think you know, the issue is cefosbuvir will be approved for treatment-naive genotype ones, as far as I know. Now, if you can get it and you can do it off-label, um, then doing it for longer in a prior failure, there's no reason to believe an NS34A failure shouldn't respond perfectly well to a nuke because they're a totally different drug class. So the difference becomes, are you following um, you know, the package insert and what it's approved for, or are you going off-label? But I think from an off-label perspective, you're going to have options for these patients by early next year. 
Um, now, if they failed a triple therapy, um, then simiprovir, I don't think, is going to be an option right out of the gates necessarily because we saw that these rates of um, resistance were still quite high in those patients. Um, but, um, you know, would I be willing to try combinations? I mean, I would, but I don't think a cefospivir simiprovir combination has been attempted in triple combination failures that I know of. Um, no. And I'd be very concerned that if they still have resistance, they could fail. So I think what you're looking at for those triple therapies right, failures right now is a cefospivir-based regimen that includes interferon and ribavirin. Does that but, answer your question? Yeah. yeah. But cefospivir plus decladosphere was looked at in that yeah, population. Yeah, right. But cefospivir hasn't been submitted to the FDA yet, yeah. as far as I know. So there's delay in that one. But I think if you try to take the semipivir, sofosbivir, and combine them in a triple therapy failure, we don't have data for that. And I'd have concerns, given that there is cross-resistance re there, as to their risk of failure. So there's going to you're going to there's going to be have to be some, some creativity and being very careful and understanding some of these some of these data and attempting to apply them. But I'm not sure necessarily that the FDA or the package insert is going to necessarily guide you in that is the problem. So I think for those patients that you're describing, it's still a little bit questionable as to how you fit them in over the next year or two until we have additional approvals, for sure. So there's one more written question. I'm not sure it really has anything to do with your talk. But it says, is it possible that just like HCV, HIV can or have been cleared in some patients? <laughs> we know it. We need Steve Meeks. Right, right, right. I mean, we know it's been. I mean, we know that there are patients who have been clearly exposed and never infected, and we know about the, you know, the CCR5 Delta mutation. And we know about the kid, the, babies, um, yeah. the baby who was, you know, quote unquote cured, who got early exposure, essentially very early, almost post-exposure prophylaxis, if you will. Yeah. Um, but at this point in time, I think anything along those lines are um, uh, investigational and research-like, and we don't know whether that child could ever be reproduced. It's certainly not an adult who has chronic infections. So. And they're, they're very different viruses, right, in terms of their replication oh, and, yeah. and integration and that stuff. So yeah. I'm not sure HCV experience tells us much about the possibility of curing HIV. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. OK. Any other questions for Susanna? Thank you, everyone, for okay. sticking around. Thanks.